out. Cheer up. I will. I just hate to fight with anybody. When you win, you lose. You know, when you harp. Well, you're free. Maybe the trouble is you're not used to it yet. No, the trouble is I always end up back where I started. Never had anybody much. Here I am. Well, you had your mother, didn't you? How do you have somebody who disappears all the time? Ticklish business anywhere you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen, joined by the amazing Samantha. Sam, how are you? I'm great. This is so serendipitous. And I've been excited about this for a while. So it's awesome <laughs> that we have our wonderful guest and we're able to talk about Marilyn on her birthday. So it's so special. I know at the time of recording, this is actually Marilyn Monroe's birthday, which we did not. I want to take credit and say like, oh, I planned this <laughs> from the get go. I did not. This was just good timing. But we are so thrilled to have our guest today talking to us about Marilyn and some of her later films, the back half of her career. It's the amazing Holly Madison. Holly, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Holly, for people that don't know you, which is shocking to me, but classic film <laughs> community, they don't ascribe to a lot of modern things. As Samantha will tell you, we call her our time traveler because she lives in a world pre-1970. Can you talk a little bit about your interest in classic film and Marilyn, just your career in the industry? I've always loved classic film since I was a little girl. And I think Marilyn was really what got me into that. I was aware of Marilyn as every 80s baby was, mostly because of Madonna, because she was always referencing Marilyn and she was always in the media. When I was 10, I got this set of Marilyn Monroe paper dolls my aunt gave me for Christmas, and I was just obsessed with them for some reason. It had a little biography about her on the back, and they had little drawings of the costumes from all her films, and I was just obsessed with it, and I just felt like I needed to know more about her, so I would look at the TV guides all the time and try to find when her movies were playing and watch them all. And I just fell in love with her and her story. Samantha and I were just talking off air about auctions. Marilyn's one of those that there's always auctions for mm -hmm. her stuff. Are you a collector of Marilyn's stuff? I wish I was more of a collector. I actually have <laughs> one of her bras that I bought 15 years ago at one of the Julian's auctions. It's a black bra. That's one of my senior with the bra. Yeah, that's so awesome. That is so cool. I don't know if I'm that cool. I pat myself on the back with, I got my pictures. It's interesting. We're talking about Marilyn and her 1950s, 1960s. My big claim to fame is I have a huge picture of her from the set of Let's Make Love that John Bryson took. It's my showpiece. Oh, that's Arthur, so cool. It's great. You see Arthur Miller in the background, which I'm like, eh, I don't know if yeah. I <laughs> want him in there. I want to extend this question out to Samantha mm -hmm. too. Marilyn is one of those, everybody loves her. But as we've talked about in previous episodes, everybody has different views of Marilyn, especially later in the films that we're talking about today, from Prince and the Showgirl to Let's Make Love to The Misfits. How do each of you see Marilyn as a person, as an actress, especially at the later half of the 50s into the 1960s before her death? The first thing I think of is I think of a hard worker. I think of somebody who had so many career goals and really wanted to be taken seriously and really threw herself in. Even when she was going through so many things in her personal life, that was always such a major priority to her. And I just really 
admire her work ethic and everything she accomplished. I'm so sad she didn't get to do more. It is so unfortunate that Marilyn passed in the point of her life that she did because I know she parted ways on the set of Let's Make Love with Natasha Lytus, who had been her acting coach for such a long time. A lot of the over-exaggerations we see of Marilyn are accredited to Natasha and how she told Marilyn to act and what she thought would look good on camera. And when you see Let's Make Love, you see such a more natural Marilyn. When you see the misfits, you see such a more natural Marilyn. She's so in her element. And it's such a shame that we didn't get to see that raw talent that was underneath the gorgeous red lip and the blonde hair. Everybody has their own opinion of Marilyn. She's so beloved, but everybody has to put their two cents in on her image and her legacy. Part of the reason why I thought it was so special to have Holly on is that she has also a unique, I'm sure, perspective she's viewed in very much the same way as Marilyn's. Well, thank you. It's important to get past the looks and get to who she really is as a person. That's a really good point. There was some clip of a news segment on TikTok. It was something recently. The newscaster was talking about Marilyn Monroe and she introduced her saying, oh, Marilyn was the biggest sex symbol in film history. It seems so reductive talking about her because she's really the biggest movie star in history. You can talk about people who were more critically acclaimed or won more awards, but there's really no one more beloved or no one more synonymous with Hollywood. But it's still like, instead of saying she was the biggest film star of all time, it's like, oh, she was the biggest sex symbol in film. What? She's not that niche. It's so weird to me that that's still the way someone would describe her if they're just given one sentence. I was talking to fellow classic film writer Carla Valderrama the other day. We were talking about how Marilyn Monroe is pop culture. And at the same time, there's this belief that she is not pop culture. But if you bring up any other blonde actress of that era, as much as we all love them, you, we just did an episode on Jean Harlow. You bring up Jane Mansfield. There's nobody more ubiquitous than Marilyn Monroe. Even if you are not a classic film fan, you know who she is. I live in LA and in the heart of Hollywood is a drug rehab place that uses Marilyn's image very prominently on its marquee. That is why I'm both fascinated and also really saddened about Marilyn's legacy because as we've seen, anybody can put her face on something mm -hmm. and it becomes this symbol for something. So, okay, drug rehab place. You're like, okay, <laughs> add it. For the LA foster care system, they've used her as an example of you could adopt a child that's going to be the next Marilyn Monroe. Are we going to talk about Marilyn Monroe's time in foster care? Because yeah. it wasn't really peppy. <laughs> I feel very protective, I'm sure, as we all do of, of Marilyn in that instance. They're making a new movie about her this year, which yeah. allegedly is going to be this NC-17 thing that I'm just not excited about at all. <laughs> Fringe. It just reminds me of when she got the script for the Jean Harlow movie that later Carol Baker was in. And Marilyn turned it down because she hated the script. And she said, I just hope nobody does that to me when I'm gone. But they're doing it. <laughs> They've been doing uh, it since 1976, starting with Misty Rowe. And there's mm -hmm. been some good actresses that have played Marilyn. I recommend everybody listen to our episode that we did on The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe. Kelly Garner, I'm biased because I'm fortunate to know her, but I think she did a really great job. That's yeah. a really great script. I'm always fascinated, especially with looking at Marilyn's latter film, we decided to get the 1950s leading up to her death. Samantha, you were right on the money talking about 
the naturalness and the beauty of her. I mean, watching Prince and the Showgirl, which was not an easy shoot for her. And I'm not telling people to go watch My Week with Marilyn because that movie has its own problems. The camera loves her in that movie. If somebody asks me, what is Marilyn the most beautiful in? I say Prince and the Showgirl because there's just this Gibson girl luminosity to her. She's so gorgeous. And it's also a movie that because the tone is all over the place, she's able to do some really broad comedy. She gets to play drunk really funny. But then she also gets to be involved in this story of political upheaval, which nobody would have expected from her. The film she was doing as she's starting her production company and she's trying to come into her own, I always wondered, and I'm interested to hear both of your thoughts, what do we think Marilyn in the 1960s? She died in 62, unfortunately. But the 1960s had so many different changes in beauty and femininity and filmmaking. How do we think Marilyn would have done had she lived into that era? I'm so bummed we didn't get to see it because with the misfits and with the clips from Something's Got to Give that was never finished, you see she's finally starting to play different roles and aging into roles. She's no longer playing the 20-something ingenue or the young showgirl. She's now a divorcee in Reno or in Something's Got to Give, she was supposed to be playing an upscale mom. She does great in both of those. Well, one of them wasn't finished, but from the clips you can see, she's doing amazing. And I'm so sad we didn't get to see her evolve into other things because she was starting to take age-appropriate roles. It's just such a shame we never got to see that. Going back to The Prince and the Sugar Roll, that's one of the most underrated ones. That and Bus Stop are the two underrated Marilyn movies that I always love to recommend to people. It's so beautifully shot. I have to mention Jack Cardiff. He's up there among my favorite cinematographers. He did Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, which made Ava Gardner look absolutely incredible. So his work is so good. Into the 60s, I would compare her to James Dean in the sense of they went out strong. We don't know if maybe their careers would have fizzled out afterwards or if they would have continued to make fantastic films. But Marilyn was about to basically make history because everyone talked about Jane Mansfield's nude appearance in Promises, Promises, which came out after Marilyn passed that same year. And Marilyn had shot a nude scene for Something's Got to Give that was going to be shown on the big screen. So that was a pretty big deal, especially talking about Playboy and the sexual revolution. Marilyn would have been right in the midst of all that. At least for the 60s, her career was pretty well tied up. As far as after that and what her decline or what her older roles would have been like, that's just something that I would have loved to see. She would have kept working. She was just so ambitious and was always thinking of what the next thing was. And I think she was really smart and knowing when the jig was up with a certain character. Like After the seven-year itch, she was like, I need to do something else. I'm not going to do the same exact character again that I've done for the last three films. She was always thinking ahead and she was always up to what the next step would have been. So when we talk about this commodification that Marilyn has, she passed in 62, but it feels like almost immediately she was commodified and became almost like currency. I joke now we live in the crypto world. I'm like, well, she was an NFT before we had NFTs just because so many people were trading on her image. And of course, Playboy became the place where a new generation of people saw her pictures for good and for bad. As much as it created this thing, it still was also commodifying her as a a person. Holly, obviously your connection to Playboy. How do you look at Marilyn being what put the magazine on the map? 
it's really a complicated history just because she didn't consent to the first issue. She was never asked if she wanted her photo published because the photo had been out in a nude calendar, but this was the first time it would really have been available to a mass audience. So she wasn't asked if she wanted that. And it ended up working out for her, the publicity work. People felt really connected with the way she admitted to being in the nude photo and the way she just embraced it and was like, hey, I really needed $50. My car was about to be repossessed. People really connected with that honesty and that freshness. But nobody knew it was going to work out like that. That could have completely destroyed her career and nobody cared. They just published the photo anyway. She wasn't paid for it. She had to go buy a copy of the magazine herself to even see it. But it did end up working out for her. Supposedly, from what I've heard, when she was doing that nude scene and something's got to give, she did want to give some still photos from that shoot to Playboy because this was when she felt like she was being underpaid by Fox and they were paying Elizabeth Taylor 10 times what they were paying her. And she wanted to show, this is publicity, this is what I do best. She wanted to show the studio, this is who you're dealing with and this is where your value lies. That is just so cool. I remember I've read about that too. And people try to make the comparisons, of course, to Jane Mansfield and the fact that Jane had that agreement that she would pose pretty much every year for for a few years for Playboy. You just wonder what Marilyn could have been like if she had the opportunity to own her sexuality and been the person to make those decisions about where pictures of her would end up. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, she was never that lucky. Samantha, you brought up Bus Stop, which I find to be a controversial film in the oeuvre of Marilyn. You know, I hate that movie, mostly (laughs) because I feel like the male lead in that movie is just so annoying. And because it is really the story about a dude that really just wants to own a woman and really take possession of her. And she spends the entire movie being like, dude, leave me alone. I do not like you. Go away. That movie brings up a lot of what we're talking about. And maybe that's why I don't like it. It's commenting on the discomfort that we now see. That's what makes Marilyn, unfortunately, very timeless, is that a lot of her movies, especially later in her career, were really commenting on things that we're now just talking about, like we admit as women that we have to experience, like guys that want to own every part of you. Something like Some Like It High, the concept of, a woman who is not persecuted for her bad decisions in men, but it's just assumed that like, oh, you're an idiot because you have this bad history with dating or even something like the misfits. You know, There's a lot to Marilyn that just makes her so relevant to us. And thus why her movies compared to some other classic films that we've talked about don't feel as dated to me. Yeah, she has such a skill with conveying that emotion. I notice, especially in her later films, When her character is supposed to be feeling anxiety, I feel it. She has such a genius with just conveying the feeling of anxiety or panic or discomfort. That is so true. Stop. As far as the plot goes, is not super appropriate these days. Her acting in it is so good, though. I mean, she's able to put on that accent. She makes that struggle feel so real between their characters. I'm also super biased because I know Don Murray, who's basically her last leading man in that film. He talked about what a great relationship they had and how much he admired her. And the fact that she was really going out on her own at that point. You have scenes that are similar to that in films like Let's Make Love, that final scene in the elevator where 
Eve's Montana is trying to still win her over. It definitely feels me too <laughs> in some spots. You could say that about a lot of her movies. What's interesting too about her leading men is that there seems like a real sea change with the guy she's playing opposite as she's embarking on this later part of her career. Lawrence Olivier was a huge star, but he wasn't big with the youth. Allegedly, a key reason that he wanted Marilyn Monroe was to get her audience to come see this movie that he knew would not necessarily be interested in it. But Don Murray was not a big name, unfortunately. Yves Montand was not A-list name. Even in something like Something's Gotta Give, I always am thrown by her starring opposite Dean Martin because I know that the Rat Pack was a huge thing, but he's not Frank Sinatra. So I'm always thrown by what went into deciding who her leading men were. I don't know if it's like what we see with like Cary Grant and the concept of like, oh, that's the lead. Anybody else is just peripheral. I always am thrown by how distinct her leading men get in this later half. I mean, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis are pretty much the biggest names in that period of film that she was acting opposite. That's so interesting. I know for Let's Make Love, a lot of major stars turned the role down. I forget who Harry Grant was one. There was a long Gregory list. Peck. They just didn't want to be in her shadow. Yeah, I believe Gregory Peck, when he got the first draft of the script, he hated Arthur Miller's changes because Arthur, of course, put all the spotlight on his wife. And apparently compared to the first draft where his character was a much bigger role, according to Gregory Peck, it was a lot funnier. I believe he said something <laughs> along the lines of, this is now as funny as pushing my grandma down the stairs in a wheelchair. That's what he said when he read the version that really blew up Marilyn's character. But I'm such a fan of Let's Make Love. That's another one that really goes under the radar. And it's really her most natural self of the films that I've seen, unless you count the parts of Something's Gotta Give that are out. That would have been such a crown jewel in her career. And seeing her work with Dean would have been so cute because they were friends. And Dean really looked out for her at times during her career, even though the Rat Pack were barred from her funeral, ultimately. I love Dean. I would have loved to see them together. It would have been so cute. I don't even know how many of their scenes were even completed. Not very many. The scenes that they shared, I don't I don't think they shared many. And that's what always is interesting to me to know that they eventually did remake Something's Gotta Give, a.k.a. My Favorite Wife, the Cary Grant, Irene Dunn movie. And they when they remade it, eventually, it was with James Garner and Doris Day and Polly Bergen, which again is just so far afield from the trio that we were working with, which was Dean and Marilyn. Was it Sid Charisse who was the other woman in that? She was. Yeah, she was playing Polly Bergen's role. I've seen the clips from Something's Gotta Give and I've seen Move Over Darling many times. I'm a big fan of it. But if Marilyn had been in Doris Day's role and they made Move Over Darling as just a film, it would have been awful, if I'm being honest. The clips that exist of Marilyn and Something's Gotta Give is way better. And I think I would have liked that much better if it had been completed. I, also, just the cast. I mean, Sid Charisse and Dean Martin... And I believe even Phil Silvers has a minor role in Something's Gotta Give in the clips that they showed. That would have been incredible, but we have Move Over, Darling, and it's pretty good. It's no, what's the other one she was in with James Garner? You know. Oh, it's <laughs> the thrill of it all. Yeah, it's no thrill of it all, but it's good. Costuming, too, is another change that we get. Everybody remembers the Ori Kelly dress from 
some like it hot where it's pretty much just spangly things over her boobs and it's beautiful dress but that was the last costume that really was this huge showstopper you look at her costumes in something like the misfits or let's make love or even something's got to give it's more conservative let's make love she has that sweater that big chunky cozy sweater with the tights but there was definitely a marked difference in her wardrobe i'm hoping that's more her choice to be like i'm gonna wear cozy clothes and more age appropriate stuff and not the studio being like listen you're over 35 we're gonna have to matron you up girl here is a short little ad for our patreon if you are a fan of old hollywood classic entertainment and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms please subscribe to our patreon page like these wonderful people christine meyer danny david floyd jacob haller and mcf our Patreon page is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. That's ticklish B-I-Z. If we can reach 30 subscribers, you'll be treated to a full special episode looking at the 1976 TV biopic Gable and Lombard starring Jill Clayburgh and James Brolin as the iconic pair. Is the movie everything you'd hope it to be? And take that to mean whatever you want it to. Subscribe to Ticklish Biz and help us reach that goal. A special reminder, if we can get to 100 subscribers, we are looking forward to posting a deep dive into an infamous movie in ticklish business circles. Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? Well, if we can get to 100 subscribers, you'll get to hear all of our opinions on Love Story. Trust me, there's a lot of them. Meanwhile, we have a new project in the hopper. Beginning in May 2022, we'll begin a brand new season of Based on a True Podcast episodes looking at the king of rock and roll himself, appropriately entitled Being Elvis. The special series will examine a new Elvis biopic each week, beginning with Kurt Russell's memorable turn in 1979's Elvis, and coming to a close with director Baz Luhrmann's new movie based on the singer's life entitled, you guessed it, Elvis. The series will be available to Ticklish Business Patreon subscribers beginning the week of May 27th. Now, back to the show. I know for something's got to give, there was definitely a decision to change the wardrobe because they wanted to give her like an upscale department store style wardrobe. So she fit that upscale wife and mom thing. I don't know whose decision it was, but we know she was very hands-on as far as the details with the costumes going with her character. She even ripped apart the Trevia outfit for bus stops. So it looked more worn and more raggedy and not like a Hollywood showgirl costume. So it looked more realistic. Right. Yeah. Cause her character is not even supposed to be a great showgirl. Mm-hmm. Bus stop. I love the black and white dress that she wears in some of the test shoots for something's gotta give. That's honestly, if it had been worn, it would have been one of my favorite Marilyn costumes. Oh my gosh, she has so many cute clothes. There's the one like beige suit where she has the little fur hat. It's so adorable. Absolutely. And you can really see it. Such a style change. Her hair went almost white in that mm-hmm. era and her makeup is a lot more natural. She really did away with the red lip in those last few years. And when you see her final photo shoot with that one sweater right before she passed, it's so natural. And that's definitely something I feel we missed out on. Why I like Prince and the Showgirl so much, too. She's got darker hair. I don't think I've ever seen her hair that dark blonde. The makeup is far more natural. It's complemented by some great lighting and cinematography. A lot of people say that that was Arthur Miller's influence. That was the relationship where allegedly she was the most happy. I don't know if I necessarily 
want to give Art all the credit, mostly because he knows what he did. <laughs> you know, watch something like you mentioned, Let's Make Love, Samantha, in terms of Arthur Miller's changes. There is a real contingent of people that, again, because Marilyn's credits and accomplishments never get to be fully her own, that say that, of course, a lot of her latter half of her career was so dynamic and so diverse because Arthur Miller was willing to look at scripts and willing to change things. The Misfits is this huge sea change for what her career could have been because he wrote it. That really diminishes her and I think gives him just too much credit. Supposedly, she hated some of the changes that were made to the Misfits at the last minute, too. Like, she didn't like the screaming in the desert scene. She's like, I guess he thinks my character's so dumb, I can't explain anything. So I just go hysterical. She felt it was too autobiographical, that essentially he was writing about himself and her. Allegedly, the Gable character is supposed to be based on him. And I'm like, well, that's a glow up. That certainly comes through. You can't be objective as a writer if you're writing about people that you know sometimes, especially a husband and wife relationship like that. And at the same time, he also complained about her popularity and her fame being a creative block for him. He couldn't write because she, she was very needy and very clingy. So I'm like, okay, which is it? Are, are you a torture genius or are you the one who's responsible for her career? You can't have it both ways. <laughs> I would say he wasn't even the only man in her life that was like that with her. And she had the whole falling out with Milton Green, who was responsible for so many of her photographs. It got down to them arguing over who was taking the salad bowl. (laughs) (laughs) That was when she had her miscarriage was when she was making some like it hot. He had all of those disagreements with Billy Wilder. She was apparently so hard to work with. And it was Billy's genius that got that film finished. Of course, Tony and Jack Lemmon's patience. But no, when you see Marilyn on screen, that's all her at the end of the day. As much as Billy Wilder is my favorite director, Marilyn made some like a hot what it is. Absolutely. Because we were talking about costumes. We're talking about Marilyn. We haven't talked about the Met Gala, the wearing of Marilyn's happy birthday Mr. President dress, which was this era by Kim Kardashian. How do we feel about that? I haven't spoken about it. I don't need angry Kim K fans on my Twitter. But at the same time, I'm still just shocked. And I know we've had 18 other shocking things happen in the last couple of months that taken focus away from that. But I'm still shocked that that was something that happened. (laughs) Yeah, I think it really speaks to the museum that was holding it. If maybe it had been a, a more highbrow location, they would have cared more about the conservation and not so much about let's trot it out so we can get more attention and move it out to our LA location. (laughs) I have mixed feelings about it because at first I was like, no, I mean, I would want to wear it. You know what I mean? I was lucky enough to wear some of her things for an auction about 10 years ago. Nothing as delicate as the Mr. President dress or anything like that. So on one hand, I was like, no, nothing wrong with it. I would have done it. But then when you look more into what kind of fabric the dress was made out of and how delicate the fabric was and how precious that particular garment is. It's a little bit like, "Mm, maybe that shouldn't have been the one. (laughs) My opinions related to this are somewhat controversial because I'm biased in the sense that I do love Kim. I love Kim and I feel like she and her life parallel Marilyn's in a lot of ways. I definitely wanted to bring this up because I figured we would bring up the Met Gala. I was just watching the Kardashians, the new show, and she's having this meltdown over parts of her sex tape possibly being released. 
And the day before I had been reading about Marilyn and how she was feeling about the calendar being released and Playboy. And they're two of the most photographed women in the world. So if you have to pick and choose who's going to wear the dress, Kim is not a bad choice. Oh, yeah. I, I think if anybody's going to wear it, I think yeah. it's great that she was respectful. And also she doesn't waste the opportunity. I feel like any other celebrity could have done it and it would have been like, okay, cool. But she makes sure with everything she does that it's done just right and it gets covered to the maximum possible. I, is wasted with her. If you're asking me whether Kim should have worn the dress, of course I would say no. As a collector, it hurts my heart. I don't love it obviously should be in storage for other people to appreciate. But if it had to happen, Kim at the Met Gala could have been worse. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think from a conservationist standpoint, it's a little bit more on the museum than it is on her. There were people on TikTok commenting about, because there were like the behind the scenes videos of people yanking the dress up on her and they're like, oh, it's on a wooden hanger. All these costume people all of a sudden were on my For You page and commenting on how careless they were being with the dress. Kim isn't a conservationist. She's not a professional costume person. (laughs) She's not a museum person. That's more on the people that were handling the dress. On top of that, I believe they gave her some locks of her hair. And I know people are talking about how awful it is that they're just taking bits and pieces of Marilyn and just scattering them away at this point with no value. And I don't even know if those locks are real. You know, one of my really good Marilyn research friends, April, a good friend of the podcast, she she said, no, these are fake. Yeah, I heard that too. I follow this account called Marilyn Monroe Collection, and he was bringing out all these receipts like that hair isn't really hers. That all just speaks to Ripley's, I think. It says so much. We're talking about the commodification of Marilyn. I mean, even in death, there's still pieces of her, real or not, that were trading. I wanted to ask Holly, I've talked to performers who have gotten opportunities to wear replica costumes or real costumes from certain celebrities of the past. And they've talked about the feelings that they get when wearing it. Some have said that it feels transformative. When you got to wear some Marilyn clothes, was there a feeling or was it just just putting on another shirt? No, there was definitely a feeling. You obviously want to be really careful and respectful of all the garments. Everything is fascinating about it. Just how well-made garments were back then, how well they fit. It was such a moment of awe for me because my favorite thing were these Marilyn Monroe paper dolls. And I get to wear some of the actual outfits that were in the paper dolls. So it was one of my favorite days ever. That's amazing. It's impossible not to talk about the latter half of Marilyn's career. We've talked about where we could have seen her career going. One of the things that I always hear from people is like, oh, do you think she would have directed? Do you think she would have become a director? I don't know if I subscribe to that belief that she would have become a director because I think for women of the era, aside from Ida Lupino, it was just something that they didn't even necessarily think was going to be a possibility. If anything, she would have been a really great producer, which she was trying to do with her Uh, production company. Do you guys think she would have been a producer? Do you think she would have tried directing down the line. Definitely producing and just challenging herself more and more as an actress. I think if she had wanted to direct, I honestly think she would have said something while she was alive or tried to do it while she was alive because she was that incredibly ambitious. If Marilyn Monroe Productions had been more of a success, she would have moved forward with all of that. She could have done anything she put her mind to, I like to think. So if she wanted to direct, I think she would have. If she wanted to produce, I think she would have too. 
There are so many what ifs. I make the Jane Mansfield comparison, but a lot of people think that her career would have been cut short just as quickly as Jane's because there was all that counterculture movement. We don't even know how successful she would have been under all of that, but she would have been continuing to re-identify herself and continuing to try to fit wherever Hollywood wanted her to fit. I think she would have had to in a way. You look at the big stars of the 1960s, which is predominantly Audrey Hepburn, and I'm actually going to mention when we were talking about leading men, how much worse Audrey fared when it came to her leading men. <laughs> Marilyn, I'm like, be glad you're working with someone who's only like 10, 15 years older than you, not like Fred Astaire and Humphrey Bogart, who were both decades and decades older than Audrey. So Gary Cooper at least had that going for her. And yes, she worked with Eve Montand, who wasn't the most attractive man in Hollywood, but I mean, they had an affair. So at least Marilyn was attracted to him. <laughs> you look at Audrey and Shirley MacLaine. The look is vastly different. The pixie cuts, very slender women. And then as the 1960s went on, you got blonde bombshells that were in response to Marilyn that were just far more outrageous, whether that's Jane Mansfield, Mamie Van Doren, who I think is very underrated in some of her films, Diana Doors, which was the British equivalent of Marilyn Monroe. It's really always fascinating to me to look at how Marilyn as a physical series of attributes, Hollywood tried to go to this extreme, not just in appearance, but also you got the rise of sex comedies and there's more frankness to it, which just makes you realize that male executives in power at this time totally missed the point on what made Marilyn so amazing. Not that those actresses didn't make interesting films, but very different from what she was putting out. And yet it was in response to her that these women got jobs in Hollywood. Right. Yeah, you look at Jane Mansfield and she's more like the costume version of Marilyn. Yeah, yeah. I have a ton of respect for Jane I do think some of those women probably hurt Marilyn, though, in the way that they went about just the exaggeration. I know Marilyn and her feelings toward Jane was, there's room for both of us. There's room for both of us to be successful and have careers and support each other. You don't have to go out and be a copy of me, was her sentiment. But I love all the blondes. I'm obsessed with blondes. It's my whole thing. Jaja. Diana, Mamie, all of them. I love them. So I definitely sympathize for Marilyn and how she would have felt about all of them existing in the same bubble. But I love that they all did exist in the same bubble. <laughs> yeah, I'm so curious how she really felt about that. Because on one hand, you must feel so threatened because that's the place where you've been successful. And here come all these other people coming for your spot. But on the other hand, she really wanted to leave that for lack of a better word, bimbo persona behind. There must have been a part of her that felt threatened, but there must have been a part that was, that's okay, you can have it. I'm so curious how she felt about that. I can't imagine how scared she must have been moving forward if counterculture had been something that had been brought to her consciousness, if she would have felt threatened by that too, or if she was ready to move on and do something different. We've t moved into this post-Me Too era I feel like we've become more sympathetic to her and the biopics for the most part, aside from what could be coming down the line, have tried to be a bit more nuanced in how they portray her struggles with mental illness, her relationships, her career. Holly, you've 
put out a book. You've talked about this before. How do you look at classic filmdom, especially figures like Marilyn or Jane, the concept of being a beautiful blonde in Hollywood? How do you look at it now as we are post Me Too and we are more aware and cognizant of these things now than we were when Marilyn was working? It's just so crazy because I feel like back then you didn't really have an outlet and everything was like this open secret within a community and you just had to do what you had to do. And it must have been so frustrating. And I know there was some article at one point where Marilyn kind of commented on it. I forget what the article was called. It was something like wolves I've known before or something. And it was all about how men had approached her throughout her life. And she did some vague commentary on the casting couch. And it's crazy just because nobody really had any power to speak out back then at all. And it was just something you had to accept and put up with, hope it worked in your favor. I don't know if you could answer this definitively, but do you think we've come far or the open secret element? Are we just better at hiding it? There's definitely obviously still a massive imbalance between the sexes in the industry and anywhere else. But I think it's such a huge step forward just to be able to come forward and have a platform and be able to talk about it as people are now, whether it's through social media or just the public having more of a general sense of acceptance of people telling their stories. It's such a huge step forward, but obviously there's a lot of work to do. It's such a shame that Marilyn didn't have those kinds of resources at her disposal and didn't have the support of other women in the industry as publicly as we support each other now. Definitely on those fronts, I wish she could have been around today to see the progress that has been made. I don't wish she was around to see what they've done with her image and her legacy quite as much. But I think she would have been proud of where Hollywood is and where it's going. Yeah, I think so too. You bring up had she lived what her legacy would have been. I mean, it's a controversial statement, but her leaving her, what was it, her image to Lee Strasberg was what damned her in the sense that when you have people who were in charge of your estate and your life rights, and they're not necessarily working in your best interest, you get something like this. Not everybody was Paul Newman, who was incredibly clear in his will, do not do 3D. I don't even care if that's not even a thing. Holograms could be real one day, and I don't want one. We see this with other celebrities that died tragically, Whitney Houston or Bruce Lee. It's always something where I'm always like thrown by looking at whose legacy becomes this huge thing and which ones are very tightly controlled. There's a full Whitney Houston hologram concert in Vegas right now. (laughs) It's so weird. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. It's it's a thing. I remember when they did that weird chocolate commercial a couple years ago with Audrey Hepburn. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. I never saw that. Oh my God. You could probably find it on YouTube. They used some sort of CGI 3D model and it's got the uncanny valley of it looks waxy and bizarre, but it's Audrey Hepburn dressed like it's Roman holiday and she's eating this chocolate. It's just disturbing. Right. And Dior did the same thing. When they did their J'adore perfume, they had the CJ holograms of Marilyn and Marlena Dietrich and Grace Kelly in their commercial with Charlize Theron in the flesh. That was just a strange juxtaposition. They're not going to stop doing those things, especially with how willing the powers that be are with using her name and likeness. That's probably partially why she's endured as long as she has, because She's everywhere and her name and face are so ubiquitous still because they're allowed to be. 
Do you guys remember that movie from 15, 20 years ago? And it had Laurence Olivier's head. I forget what the movie was. I think it was like a Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow like adventure movie. And they go somewhere and there's like a Wizard of Oz type face. And it was Laurence Olivier's head. But it was hologram CGI. It was so creepy. Oh, my no, God. I, oh my I think I know what you're talking about. And the name escapes me. Yeah, it was creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when they did Peter Cushing in one of the Star Wars, the new Star Wars, they did a 3D thing. We could go deep in the weeds about 3D versions of some of our favorite classic film stars. I am not for them as much as I love. Let living people work. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Anything else we want to touch on before we wrap it up that we might have missed? Before we close it out, of the movies that we talked about, or even ones we didn't talk about, is there a Maryland movie, Holly, that you recommend people see that just shows her at her best? There's a couple different categories for that. Gentlemen prefer blondes if you want to see her at her musical best and at her Marilyn Monroe as a caricature best. Acting, I love her in Bus Stop, even though I know that's not everybody's favorite. I love her in The Misfit. There's so many. Those are probably the top three I would think of. For me, it's Prince and the Showgirl. I always tell people if you really want to see an underrated film where she's just utterly beautiful and she gets to do so many different things that's always my go-to tonally it's all over the place that's Larry Olivier and a Radigan script it's so good just from her character and her perspective Sam what it's about you stunning I definitely also second the prince and the showgirl it's visually such a beautiful film and she really does actually have that naturalness that we were talking about and it's just a gorgeous gorgeous movie I love the plot too so that's a favorite of mine. It's so hard to pick just one. Like if I had to pick a favorite, it would be Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. That's the gateway drug to Maryland. Yeah. And honestly, the gateway drug to classic film, truly. That was one of the first classic films I ever saw that made me realize how amazing they are. I would say those two. And if you want to throw on Bus Stop and Let's Make Love and get into her deep cuts a little bit, those are very strong recommends also. Let us know your favorite Marilyn movie or anything about Marilyn. You can email that to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. You can also DM it to us on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. We're on all social media platforms. I'd love to thank the amazing Holly Madison for joining us once again. Holly, where are you on social media? Feel free to let our listeners know anything that you have upcoming. I'm on social media at Holly Madison on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. My TikTok is at Holly Jean Madison, and I have a YouTube channel as well. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, we are on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Apple Podcasts. If you're listening via Apple Podcasts, help us out. Leave us a rating and a review. They do help us get more listeners. We also have our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, where we have all sorts of bonus content, including our six-week series, Being Elvis which is wrapping up in the next week with a look at Boz Lerman's newest Elvis biopic. So be sure to give that a listen. We will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Till then.